Welcome to On Baseball Writing, the podcast featuring conversations with writers who cover the game we know and love. Now here's your host, Eric Roseberry. Welcome, everybody, to this sixth episode uh, of On Baseball Writing. I'm Eric Roseberry. Uh, Today, very happy to be joined by R.J. Anderson, who writes about baseball over at CBS Sports. R.J., how's it going? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Uh, doing well. And so as we get into this, some of you might be familiar with RJ from uh, his work at CBS Sports. Uh, he was also uh, heavily involved at Baseball Prospectus for a few years. Uh, but I guess uh, backing up before all of that, uh, what was your story of becoming a baseball fan growing up? Well, I just kind of fell in love with the game when I was a kid. There was no you know special moment, I don't think. I remember in 1998, I was seven, eight years old. And, you know, watching Sammy Sosa hit home runs every day after school was a pretty good introduction to the game. And from there, it just blossomed. I think I really, really got into the game when I was about 11 years old. And I remember I'd watch a lot of Cubs games. They were always on TV, of course. I'd watch a lot of Braves games when they were on TV. Eventually, I became, uh, you know, a writer about the Devil Rays and the transition to the Rays. And that was in 2006. I started writing on them. And... You know, it just continued to blossom, and I still love the game. I am still discovering new things about the game, and I guess I like the idea of being able to dissect this and for it to offer so many twists and turns, and there's still a magic to the game. You know, it doesn't matter how long you've been a fan or how many games you've seen, there's still a magic to it that you're never going to be able to uncover everything about it, and I really like that, and I like the process of trying to figure out new things. So yeah, um, it's been almost 20 years now and I don't see it stopping anytime soon. Do you feel like that's how most of your, as you're getting ideas from writing, it just comes from a a curiosity that you have about the game? Absolutely. Um, One of the weird things, you know, I used to write the transaction analysis column and I remember now growing up, I, one spring, this is before we had internet here, I wanted a book of rosters because I was always really intrigued by rosters and you know the roster mechanisms and all and i stumbled upon the bp annual and i was like oh wow this book has you know hundreds and hundreds of players so that's how i got into reading the annual and that curiosity kind of sparked that and obviously you know i went on to write in a few annuals myself but yeah i would say almost all of my topics stem from watching a game or watching a specific player and just saying huh that's interesting i wonder I wonder, you know, if I could dig in on that and maybe not only produce an interesting article, but also learn a little bit more about, you know, this aspect of baseball. And, you know, fortunately, you know, we're blessed with so, again, baseball is just so full of magic and little things you can pick at that, yeah, it's been pretty, pretty fruitful process um, as, as far as finding topics and writing interesting articles. Well, and with that process you talked about, so walk us through, uh, how did you begin writing about baseball? What were some of those early uh, places you were able to do that? And then how does that end up with you at, at CBS Sports doing this full time? Well, I started in August of 2006 at D-Rays Bay, which is obviously a double race site or was a double race site. And, you know, I just asked if they were interested in writers and I sent them a sample, which in retrospect was really bad. But I I had no business writing in the public sphere, probably not even in the private sphere, honestly. And, um, you know, I sharpened my teeth there. Nobody was reading, luckily. And in 2007, I started doing stuff for Beyond the Box Score, 
just as a way of branching out into more of general baseball analysis. And, and was that the, did you approach them the same kind of way? Yeah. I mean, the site was basically left for dead at that point. So I kind of helped uh, revitalize it. You know, I was able to get some really talented writers. You might've heard of, you know, uh, Peter Bendex. He works for the Rays. Um, Dan Serkinkoff now works for the Brewers. Harry Pavlidis. And, you know, we can keep naming names here, but it was a really talented group. And they did more than I did, but, you know, I like to <laughs> just name drop them. <laughs> sure. It makes me sound more important, right? More impressive. Um, but then in two, after the 2008 season, I joined Fangraphs, and I was there until February of 2011. That's when I went to BP. And from there, I think, you know, I really kind of made a jump because I was working with talented editors. You know, Ben Lindberg was my editor for a while, and then Sam Miller, who... You know, he's just the best editor I've ever had. Mm. And what what made I, him such a good editor? I think the top thing is that he empowers you to be yourself. You never feel like he's trying to change you or change your work to like a Sam Light piece. He mm. wants you to be the best version of yourself. And obviously he has incredible technical knowledge of writing. And he's open to you getting wild with it. Like I remember him. I remember telling him, hey, I'm going to do this piece on, it was Christian Yelich and Jordan Zimmerman, um, their matchup, because Zimmerman was really good at getting Yelich to pull the ball, and Yelich like, never pulled the ball. So I was like, I'm going to get a little wild with this one, you know, in terms of how I produce it and how I uh, present the information, and you might have to you know, walk me back. And I remember him, this isn't verbatim, but I remember him being like, I want you to get wild with it. I would rather walk you back than have to walk you out, so to speak. Hmm. So yeah, he was really good about embracing these little niche ideas. Like I remember saying, Hey, I want to watch Coco Crisp steal bases and see how he does it. And it was just, honestly, I had no idea what I had to find. I figured, okay, he's just fast. And you know, that's that. But during that process, it was, I was fortunate enough to discover that he would run before the pitcher even delivered the ball. Like before he would start his delivery, Coco Crisp would take off. And then Sam always encouraged me to take those risks because you never know what you're going to find. And just his confidence in me, and my talent. And yeah, he just really empowered me to be the best me and to embrace those aspects of me, that curiosity and that willingness to do those deep dives and video and all. So yeah, uh, I guess just empowering my natural traits and all is what made him so great. In addition to the technical skills, you know, knowing what makes good writing, knowing what it's going to be a good hook or whatever. Like I, I have his emails where he would give me technical advice, starred from three, four years ago, it's like, okay. you know, just basic stuff like nut graph. What makes a good nut graph? I have emails, you know, saved of that. And I look at him, I still look at him because he's just that good at editing and of course, and good at writing as well. But yeah, it's stuff like that. So during my time at BP, I would credit him for helping me develop. And then, you know, this February, no, it was this January, um, my mother had passed away and I was pretty low. I was actually considering quitting writing because I just didn't feel like I had it in me anymore. And Jonah Carey reached out and he said, Hey, you know, I just got this gig at CBS. They're looking for another staff member. Would you be interested in having your name put on this list? And I love BP really wasn't interested in leaving, but I talked to Sam. I talked to Tommy Ransel, who is my best friend in writing. They kind of convinced me, Hey, you know, what do you have to lose going through the interview process? So I did it. And I didn't expect to get the job. 
<laughs> I really didn't. I figured, okay, whoever else is on this list, and I never asked who else was on the list because I knew one of them would get the job and I'd find out anyway. <laughs> you know, one of them is going to blow these guys away and they're going to hear me and be like, you know, who is this guy? You know, he sounds like a dumb hick. We don't want him representing our brand. Um, but then, you know, I was like four or five interviews in and I'm like, uh, maybe I do have a chance at this. And, you know, I was fortunate enough after like two or three more phone calls to be offered the position. And, you know, I really cannot say enough good things about CBS as well. They also enable me to be myself in ways that I wouldn't have expected from, a you know, a fairly large publication. I expected them to be like, okay, you can't do your weird stuff anymore. Uh, you know, you can't get, you can't make all these weird references and write these really niche articles, but you know, they published Paul Goldsmith stealing bases. And it's like, you know, I don't know that there's a huge market for first baseman who steal bases, but Hey, they were willing to publish it. And that kind of support is really, it's special. So yeah, I have nothing but positive things to say about, um, not only my time at BP, but my time so far at CBS. Well, and with that transition, so you're going from baseball prospectus to CBS. I mean, I assume you're writing for a much broader, more general audience now in some ways. Do you feel like your writings had to change at all to accommodate that? Or, I mean, it sounds like you've kept uh, a good chunk of it the same, but what's that transition been like? Yeah, I have been able to retain myself, so to speak. But absolutely, you know, at BP, it's a subscription based. You know that your audience is you know, the hardcore analytical sect. Whereas at CBS, we're trying to reach more than just that group. So, you know, just to use an example here, there was a week where I wrote four times about Tim Tebow. And <laughs> which, yes, that's, I know. Everybody has, Tebow. No, Everybody has Tebow fatigue at this point. But just to, you know, show the example here, there was an interview I did with Chris Crawford, who works for Roto World now. And it was, you know, just a Q&A about Tebow as a prospect, really serious, nitty gritty stuff. You, if you saw it on BP or Fangraphs or you know, any analytical site, you would have said, yeah, that's exactly what I would expect. So I did that. I did a piece where I broke down his swing and how he was really tight with his swing and how there wasn't a lot of flexibility there. And I also, I think I covered how, you know, defensively he's going to be limited and how he's just not likely to make the majors or even the upper minors. So again, that piece would have fit in elsewhere. But I also did, you know, a little bit of irreverent stuff by breaking down the Tim Tebow memes that came after he, you know, did that plyometric jumping in place photo at his workout. And, you know, my editor, one of my editors, Igor Mello, and I sifted through Twitter and Google to find every single team's stated public stance on whether they would attend Tebow's workout or not. So, you know, there's four different kinds of pieces right there that I covered in a week about one subject. So, you know, just to put this in general terms, we all come from analytical backgrounds. You know, Matt Snyder has been writing about baseball analytics for like a decade as well. Uh, Dane Perry obviously did BP and fan graphs and Mike Exes has done fan graphs. So we all come from that analytical background. We're capable of using the numbers and we're capable of, you know, doing the hard breakdowns using uh, advanced metrics and all. But we also try and keep it, you know, light in case, you know, there's a baseball fan reading who just wants some humor or there's a baseball fan reading who just wants the news. Mm. So we try to appeal to everybody as opposed to just one part of the pie. And whether we do that or not, it's not really for me to say, but that's the intent is to reach as many people and to appeal us to as many people as possible. So in terms of how I've changed, it's really just meant stop thinking about the game 
as, you know, what can I break down about, you know, I did a piece one time on, oh, geez, <laughs> I'm blanking now. I, you know, I did all kinds of niche pieces about this little mechanical tweak and that little mechanical tweak. And now I don't really do that. And I don't really cover, you know, the transactions for third catchers and up and down relievers and all. Instead, I'm taking more of a look at the broad topics and trying to find an interesting slice from them. So that's probably the biggest way it's changed. But I think there's a lot of positives to be gained from this change. You know, I'm learning to be more concise with my writing. I'm learning to write better nut graphs because I have to hook the reader early on topics that maybe aren't necessarily interesting to them. So I really have to, you know, flex those muscles and it's been an interesting process, but I think it's a rewarding one in terms of my writing because I'm going to gain those skills that BP perhaps didn't allow me to gain. Uh, so I don't view it as good or bad. I just view it as part of the growing experience. And with that, I mean, you mentioned writing the the hooks, trying to catch people. What have you, what do you feel like you've learned about in terms of trying to hook a general fan? I mean, do you have any basic guideline of here's what I'm trying to do early on in a piece to to engage somebody? Yeah, I would say there's sort of a template I have in my mind, you know, introductory sentence or two, and then I'm going to you know throw that hook. And this was one of the things I struggled with when I was at BP that Sam kind of broke down for me. You know, I'm a person, I, I say this is a gift, like I read writing and I can break it down for you and I have like a good feel for what works and what doesn't work just based on feel. I don't necessarily have to be like, okay, this doesn't work for this textbook, you know, textbook reason. I can just be like, no, this sentence doesn't work for me. So one of the things that Sam explained, though, is that you want to use that nut graph or at least, you know, a pretty a pretty good sentence explaining, uh, you know, the premise early on, like by your second or third paragraph. So I take what Sam told me about that and I just put it on a smaller scale. So, you know, I'm going to write an introductory sentence or two. Then I'm going to throw that hook. And it's a little different than a BP where you kind of write an introductory paragraph and then you're going to write another paragraph and throw the hook at the end. Mm. I just, you know, kind of speed, I guess I just speed the process up or I hasten it or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest difference in terms of how I approach it. But so much of it is just feel just like, okay, maybe, you know, sometimes maybe I do write a little bit longer of an introductory paragraph and then I throw the hook. So, you know, it just comes down to what you're trying to achieve. The important part is just getting the hook out there in a timely manner because, you know, no one wants to read five paragraphs, six paragraphs without really having an idea of where you're going. Mm. That's just kind of throat clearing that's unnecessary. And if you're writing multiple drafts, which I do, you should be able to eliminate a lot of the throat clearing anyway. So, yeah, you want that hook fairly early in the process so the reader knows where this is going and knows whether it's worth their time. Oh, that's yeah, good advice. And I mean, you've mentioned a lot of things you've been able to do up to this point, uh, baseball prospectus, you've written for the annual now at CBS sports, I guess with all of those things already in line, is there still a project or a, a book, a longer piece? If I had the time to do this, uh, this is something I've always wanted to be able to, to dive into, but haven't had the opportunity yet. Yeah, I actually have a few different, I, I guess we're calling this like dream goals or, you know, dream yeah. uh, assignments where um, you know, I'm actually working on one of the ones that I've been looking forward to right now. It's a profile of Jonathan Judge, who I think uh, most of your listeners would be familiar with from his work at Baseball Prospectus. He's a really smart, interesting uh, researcher who self-trained himself and, and all these statistical principles and all. So I think that's going to be an interesting one if I do it right. I also 
I, you know, I had an interest in doing a book on Gene Mach, but I don't know if that's, I don't know if there's a market for that. And <laughs> my dream article right now would probably be, you know, I'm kind of a kook, so I would like the idea of like going ghost, ghost hunting with John Gray, uh, the Colorado Rockies <laughs> pitcher who's into ghost hunting, or just doing like a series of articles on haunted uh, baseball hotels. Like we have the Vinoy down here in St. Pete, supposedly super haunted. I would like to, you know, stay overnight. Let's see if anything happens here. Maybe stay a couple nights, see if anything happens. Because that's an aspect of baseball that you kind of hear about every now and again, but no one ever really looks into it. Like whether you believe in ghosts or not, I just think that'd be an interesting piece to be like, yeah, I stayed in this room where, you know, whoever was assaulted by a, a ghost. So, <laughs> you know, here's what happened to me, if anything. And in terms of just dream projects, you know, I really, I've always kind of been into fiction and I have this novel idea that I would love to try and get out there, which the world probably doesn't need another novel written by a, a baseball writer of analytical bent, but <laughs> you know, Maybe that'll get wrote one day. So we'll see. But yeah, I have a lot of projects on my to-do list, I guess, that I would like to hit on in the next few years. Well, I'd love to read the ghost piece, so I'm pushing <laughs> for that. I don't know. Did you, I'm sure you heard recently Metal World Peace came out and said he was yes, assaulted yes. <laughs> by a ghost. So I don't know if that was driving some of it. but <laughs> No, I, I did see that just yesterday, I think it was. And yeah. Yeah, that's but you see the thing is there are like stories out there of so many of these incidents with ball players. You know, um, there was a book on it that I ran across when I was doing some preliminary preliminary research. Excuse me on just like okay, where are these haunted hotels and all? So yeah, um, I'm trying to think of an example now, but there's so many like they found a penny or a quarter that was really really old and it just randomly appeared in the guy's room overnight and stuff like that. It's like even if you don't believe in you know the paranormal aspect. I think it makes for an interesting, maybe not human interest story, but an interesting location interest story, you know? Like, oh, yeah. I don't know. I just find that stuff interesting. Oh, yeah. I would I would love that. So, yeah, if there, if you need a Kickstarter or GoFundMe, I'm sure <laughs> we could get that uh, off the ground. Or if anybody knows John Gray, let us know and we can set that up. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So who are some of the people, I guess, uh, it could be as you were growing up as a, a baseball fan or even now, um, writers you have uh, looked up to, respected? Who's that handful of people that really uh, you look to as as people you uh, would like to emulate? Uh, growing up, I really wasn't exposed to a ton of baseball writing because, again, we didn't have the internet until I was like 14, 15. And at that point, you know, I'd grown up on reading baseball prospectus annuals. Obviously, there weren't bylines, so I couldn't give you specific names. Mm. I would like to think that, you know, Jonah Carey and uh, Nate Silver and all of them really inspired me because, you know, they're obviously inspirations for a lot of people. But, you know, I didn't grow up reading Rob Nyer or Bill James. I actually just read my first Bill James handbook or abstract, I should say, uh, last December. So, you know, I didn't have that kind of introduction to baseball writing. But nowadays, you know, I read Sam Miller, obviously, you know, Ben Lindbergh. I'm just going to go through all those generic names. So I'm going to switch it up a little bit and just say some writers who I really enjoy who maybe – don't get the kind of exposure that, you know, Sam and Ben did. And granted, you know, Sam and Ben deserve everything they get. I'm just saying, you know, I'd like to shine on sure. maybe some other um, influences that don't really get that attention. So, you know, I would say Adam Sobsby, for one, he used to write about the Durham Bulls. He wrote this wonderful book on a season with the Durham Bulls. He is just ridiculously good. Uh, I would also say that, you know, Patrick W.K., uh, he's so, so good. And, you know, Emma Bachelary and Meg Raleigh and, those are some of the writers I read. Oh, Robert O'Connell is another one. He writes, or he did write for the classical. And 
I believe, also Vice in the Atlantic, and he's just so skilled. In terms of, like, you know, some of the more hardcore pieces, I would say that I looked at Ben and Sam, and I also dug in the BP archives a lot, because, you you know, you always find wild things in the BP archives that maybe you didn't remember reading, or maybe that you never read. So I would go diving through there, and I remember being really, really impressed with Thomas Gorman's work. He wrote these transaction analysis primers or transaction primers, excuse me, that I would crib for transaction analysis pieces. You know, it gave me a better understanding of that aspect of the game. And, you know, there were just so many numerous deep dives, interesting deep dives that even like Dave Cameron, everybody knows Dave Cameron from his fan graphs work now, but if you go in the BP archives, you can read his pieces that are really scouting heavy on like Kazmat Sui and James Loney. And if you go back and read it, read those now, I don't think you would guess that Dave Cameron wrote those. So mm. not only was that interesting from the perspective of, okay, what did he see in Loney? What did he see in Matsui? How much of that came true? It's also interesting in how a writer kind of developed over, you know, a decade plus of time. And it shows you that just because you write a certain style right now, it doesn't mean that's the style you're going to end up with. You're always going to be um, honing your voice and always going to be finding new ways to improve your voice, new ways to improve your style. So I, I find stuff like that interesting, and I know that's not necessarily an influence in the general sense, but it's sort of a reassuring that, okay, just because I write this way now doesn't mean this is my cap. I can still mature, I can still branch out in ways that maybe I don't even foresee as being possible right now. So I would consider it that kind of influence, but yeah, it's not a, a generic air. Here's a name that kind of influenced me um, in that sense, so... Yeah. Well, and as, as somebody we've, uh, you know, we've done a couple of these and uh, you are somebody who's been able to, to turn this into what you do. Just what's a typical day look like for you? Uh, how much or do you have a certain amount you're trying to, to write each week? What's your, uh, I mean, kind of deadline schedule look like? Just whatever you want to go into on, uh, this is what it looks like to, to write for CBS Sports as, as a career. Yeah, CBS is a little different than at BP or any other place I used to write, you know, a BP was basically, hey, write three pieces a week. You know, I didn't really have a set schedule because I was the transaction analysis guy. Transactions happen at random times. So it was just kind of like, you know, by the seat of my pants sometimes, especially around the trade deadline and during the off season, it was like, you know, if a big move happens, I'm going to cover it. It's just, I can't tell you when the big move is going to happen. At CBS, we have kind of set shifts, I would say. Uh, in terms, you know, that's just for the news aspect. They want somebody basically on the clock as long as you can be on the clock throughout a day that's reasonable. So, like, you know, I would work from 9 till 5.30 or so, and then somebody would take over for the rest of the night. And, that, again, that's just for the news aspect. But during that shift, you can work on your pet project or whatever else you wanted to get covered on the site. Uh, and But, you know, this postseason, it's a little different, like, just to give people an idea since the postseason began, I've been working 12 plus hours basically every single day. And, and that's true of the entire staff. You know, we, yeah, we've just been covering everything. And it's been a long, long month, but it's also been an, a pretty interesting and rewarding month because it shows that, hey, you know, I can keep working through. I'm not going to hit that wall that I would expect to hit after a week or two. You know, I have that endurance, I have that um, perseverance and all in me in my work. So, it's a rewarding experience in that sense, even if it sounds kind of miserable. But the typical week for me would be 
come up with ideas basically on the fly. You know, I'm watching a lot of games. I'm getting influenced by, you know, news stories that are coming out. How can we take a deeper cut at that? You know, with, um, say, with the postseason coming up, I wrote about the teams that were the teams and the players who are most likely to show up in a positive way in terms of stolen bases. And, you know, luckily for me, the Cleveland Indians were the top um, priority there, you know, the top focus. And that's obviously paid off by me being able to link back to that. But it's kind of stuff like that, just looking at what's going on in the baseball world, figuring out how you can slice and dice that into interesting articles that remain timely. So it's a little less, okay, pie in the sky, I want to cover Johnny Cueto's pickoff move, a little more, okay, Johnny Cueto just picked off three batters, excuse me, three base runners in an inning, how can I turn that into something deeper, you know? Mm. So it's just the perspective has changed, but a lot of the thinking is still in place, you know, taking that more nuanced look that maybe, you know, we wouldn't cover if it was just a generic news story. It's just a little bit more on a hastened schedule, a little bit more of an aggressive schedule. And again, I find that rewarding. I think being able to turn that around quickly, test your writing in a way that, you know, having multiple days to sit and let a piece marinate didn't. And I'm not saying one's better than the ever. I'm just saying I'm getting a different experience and it's going to help nurture my skills in a way that, you know, remaining a BP and remaining on that three times a week schedule wouldn't have. So, yeah. On the on the breaking news side of that, so you're you're on the clock and, and yeah. something happens. Is there any, uh, and maybe it's self-pressure or just part of the job, since there are a number of sites covering the same topics to be out there quicker than anybody else? Or is that just, you know, that's going to come from other sites. So let's make sure we uh, get this right and take a little more time on it. No, I would say that the pressure is to offer something that the other sites didn't offer. Okay. And I would say like, just to use an example, when a trade goes down, I can leverage my history of writing about transactions in a way that you know, a writer at another site who doesn't have five years of writing about transactions twice a week wouldn't be able to um, put forth. So, yeah, I, we don't necessarily focus on speed. You know, we're not worried about getting 400 words up in five minutes. We're worrying about getting 400 words up that we can say, hey, look at how good we covered this. Look at how you know well-rounded our coverage is mm. within, you know, whatever time frame that would take. So, yeah, my editors don't pressure us to be like, okay, you know, write 500 words up a generic 500 words within, you know, 15 minutes. It's more like, Hey, you know, take your cut at this and you know, we're going to be best even if we're not first. So that's the perspective that we take on a lot of this stuff. That's good. Uh, and we always, uh, as we kind of get ready to wrap up our conversation, uh, get to this question, but as people are listening, uh, and again, uh, have thoughts of either they're just getting started with this or would love to pursue kind of the career path that you've taken, uh, what advice would you give them as here's a, here's a good way to, to get things started? Yeah, I guess my advice, my joke advice for everyone who has past life karma to, you know, to pay back would be, um, Foremost, ignore almost all public writing advice. You know, that's kind of my joke comment. But honestly, you know, the reading and writing a lot is valid advice, even if it sounds threadbare. I guess my real top piece of advice I would give is to find internal motivation because the external stimuli is not going to fuel you for as long as you would like it to fuel you. You know, you're not, you're probably not going to get rich. You're probably not going to get famous. You're probably not going to win bookshelves worth of awards. You need to find something within yourself that pushes you to continue on this path. And I'm just stating this from experience. 
I was making like minimum wage until recently writing. And you know, I had supportive parents who, you know, they are absolutely convinced I was going to make it in writing, even when I was never convinced I was going to make it in writing. And it helped me find that internal motivation. And you know, are you doing this for ego reasons? Or are you doing this because you love writing and because you love, you know, dissecting baseball? And, you know, a lot of people nowadays, I think, want the front office job or they want the full-time writing gig. And when they really, if they were to sit down and, you know, just sit there and think about why do I want this? I think they would find that they want it for ego reasons. They want it for the prestige of it. And I know I can speak from experience again on that because I wanted a front office job for years and years and years. And then one day I was like, why do I want this? Do I want it because I want it or do I want it because everybody else wants it? And once I realized it was just an ego thing, all the you know bitterness, all the jaded feelings about not getting one, just they went away. And I was like, I'm here to write. And, you know, there's this sort of this, I don't know, I think if you're like meant to write, there's this internal feeling like you just really enjoy writing, even if you're not getting paid for it. And, you know, everyone should be paid for their writing. And, you know, we need to do a better job in terms of paying people for their writing, paying them real wages. But, you know, if you can just, if you can just say, I love writing independent of all that stuff. I don't need, you know, a thousand retweets. I don't need, you know, millions of clicks. I just love producing, living this creative life. Then I think you're in a good spot and you're going to go pretty far. But you just can't be like, you know, why didn't I win this award? Why didn't I get this job? Because, you know, you're going to burn out. And yeah, I guess that would that would be my big advice. Just find that internal motivation because that internal that internal fuel is sustainable. All the external stuff, that's not going to last you a winner. You know, you're gonna be right. you're gonna go through it all so quickly that you're just gonna be left burnout and you're gonna start hating not only writing, but you might start hating baseball because mm. you associate it with all these negative feelings. So yeah, find what drives you internally. That's that's the good stuff. Mm, yeah, that's Great advice. And just final question with something you said, how important do you think the social media aspect of writing today is? I know some people rely pretty heavily on uh, you need to incorporate it a lot as a way to get your work out there. Did you find that important as you were working your way up or is it something you've just, it's a part of it, but you haven't really focused on it? Well, I'm horrible at Twitter. I mean, I barely <laughs> tweet. The only thing I tweet are bad jokes. Um, I was going through and it, there wasn't much there. So I was, no, I, <laughs> I don't even tweet every piece that I write. So I guess I'm probably an outlier in that sense. You know, I don't know. It's a sort of a double edged sword because you see some writers, I mean, you discover some writers just through, you know, retweets or through Twitter, you know, they're making funny quips or whatever, but at the same time, you know, some people don't have the impulse control and you like, you see some <laughs> of these tweets and you're like, you know what? Maybe I, maybe I don't need him. Maybe I don't need to read him or read her as much as I thought I did. And I, yeah, I guess I would just say it depends on the person. I don't think it's necessary in the sense that you're not going to make it if you don't use Twitter. Cause I mean, look, and I sound like the most generic ball writer in the world right now, but I like Tom Verducci a lot and he's not even on Twitter. Now, of course, you know, he was established before and you can't say that compared to a person just starting up. But some of my favorite writers, they don't tweet very much at all. And I still seek out their work. So, yeah, I don't think there's a, a one-size-fits-all aspect to this. I think do what feels right to you. That's not to say, you know, just stay in your shell and, you know, don't try to stretch your comfort zone. But 
I don't think you're going to make or break it based on just your Twitter feed, unless you're tweeting some really repugnant stuff. <laughs> and how many people really do that? I'm... Uh, I can think of a few. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, RJ, and that's just in the baseball writing world too. So Right, right. Well, RJ, thanks so much for your time. Uh, we really Absolutely. appreciate it. Uh, how can people uh, find you? Uh, I mean, we've already downplayed your Twitter a little bit, but if people wanted to, to find your work or anything, uh, where could they go? I'm always in their heart, but um, <laughs> I'm at R underscore J underscore Anderson. That's not to be confused with the author, RJ Anderson, who writes about fairies and all kinds of mystical creatures. Um, even though I do delve into the mystical aspect, I suppose, but, and she, you know, she, for a while there, she was the top Google result too. So that was a good, that was a good way to keep my ego in check. When I felt a little too good about myself, I'd Google my name and it'd be all about her books. And I still get tweets about her books. They'll be like, I didn't really loved your book. And I'm like, you don't mean the BP annual, do you? You mean, <laughs> you mean her latest novel and I'd point them through her direction. But yeah, R underscore J underscore Anderson, if you really feel the need to follow my dormant account. Okay, man, you can, uh, is most of your, or pretty much all you're writing at CBS Sports now? Right now, every single piece I publish is at CBS Sports. You can find that at cbssports.com slash MLB. That'll take you to our baseball hub. You know, we have a really talented staff in addition to me. I can't say enough about Dane Perry, Mike Exiza, and Matt Snyder. You know, our editors, uh, Sergio Gonzalez, Igor Mello, and RJ White do an excellent job as well. Really good group. Uh, so if you, you know, if you feel like you can support us, by all means, please do so because, you know, we, uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely do that. Uh, and thank you to everyone for listening to this latest episode of On Baseball Writing. Uh, you can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes uh, and would appreciate it while you do that. Uh, if you'd rate and review the show, let us know what you think. Uh, as I mentioned every episode, you can find me on Twitter at Eric Roseberry, and you can find my writing at Red Reporter and Call to the Pen, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>